Well, it's good to see all of you today. If you're a guest, my name's David. We're so glad you're here to worship with us. Know that anything we have going on, we want to invite you to be a part of, and we hope that you enjoy being a part of what we have going on today. Today is kind of a day, we kind of a special day. We're kind of beginning a few new things. Uh, one of the things we're doing is in our youth ministry. Uh, most well, since we've come out here about four and a half years ago, the youth have always met off campus, or for the most time, has met off campus. Uh, starting today at this hour, middle schoolers are meeting on campus uh, for their Bible study. High schools still meet across the street, and then at eleven o'clock hour, middle schoolers and high schoolers will both meet on campus for Bible study over in the conference room, which is a great thing. We're excited about having that happen. It makes it a little bit easier to do the things we need to do. Uh, traditionally, we look at the month of May here as kind of family month. We want to emphasize families next week and Mother's Day, you know, child dedication, all the things we have going on uh, throughout the course of this month. And we start a new series today. Um, it, it's designed for parents, especially. Now, it's good for everybody. I mean, even, even I'm a parent of a 35-year-old. She still needs her dad from time to time for money. Uh, <laughs> advice, she goes to her mother, which just, just doesn't seem right, but I guess it works that way. So you never stop parenting. And, and we've got all, t- listen, we got, we got parents, you know, we got lots of parents here. So we got a lot of people going to have kids. Dale, you know, we told Dale before the service, he was one of the singers, just hold off a few hours and whatever. That kid's coming soon. You know, just do all that. So we, we know it's all, you know, a lot of parenting and we want to help you. And it's a struggle. We know. Uh, we've seen some of your kids. You really need some of you a lot of help. About once a month in staff meeting, we go over a list of those kids. We think one day might end up in jail. How can we help their parents, you know, avoid that stuff? So we caught it. It's important. And, and listen, you're in the midst of whether you know it or not of a cultural war. We really, in all seriousness, do not kid yourself. There is a battle going on, and the battlefield and the prize are your kids. That's what's happening. And so our series is entitled, God Gave Them to You, So Guard Their Hearts. God gave them to you. Guard their hearts. I'm going to start the series off, and then next week I'm turning over to Joe Andrews and Brian Clayberg. Joe's our campus pastor. Brian's worship leader. They're right in the middle of all this. Those two guys, between them, obviously their wives, they have seven kids from preschool to middle school. And those seven kids, they're all boys but five. And so and there's a lot, of, a lot of girls in there. And Brian has three daughters, and I cannot wait. I'm sticking around here just to see the world he's going to go through when those kids get older. And so, you know, it's, it's a real struggle. And so what we're going to do, this is not meant to be political. If you, anybody been around me long enough knows I don't get involved in the political aspects here. We're not, you know, I know, I know you have political views and I know, you know this, different parties have different views and I get all that. That's not my concern. If what we do touches some political belief or, you know, we touch a nerve, you know, about how you vote or your candidates or whatever, you know, hey, welcome to adulthood. Okay, that happens. But that's not our goal. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to help you see things from the perspective of God. And so we're going to begin today in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. In a sermon entitled, Image Matters. We're going to be dealing with the image of God. It is foundational to understanding our children and to understanding what our children's needs are. And so I'm going to lay this foundation. And then over the next few weeks, the rest of the guys will take it. So here it is. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, 
as we come to this message today, to the series, I'm going to ask a question that really is the foundation question for the whole series. And it is the question we seek to answer this month. And the question is this, who gets to decide what your kids believe? That it is. Who's going to decide what your kids believe? So as we begin today, I want to ask another question. And that question is this. Does God have anything to say? Does God have anything to say about the way you raise your kids? Well, of course he does. Now, we come to a place like Genesis, and I love the first few chapters of Genesis. I love all of Genesis, but Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is so important because from Genesis 1 and 2 and the first part of Genesis 3, we see the world as God created it before sin entered the world. Now, when sin entered the, sin entered the world, things got messed up, and God still deals with the world, but we see the purity. We see the intent. I come to Genesis 1 a lot. In fact, the passage I'm, I'm preaching from today, I preached from twice already. Uh, to Sunday, this Sunday, I believe, actually starts my eighth year. I think I came in May of 2015. Does that make sense? You helped bring me here, so I think that sounds right. And, uh, and so this is the start of the eighth year. And I've already preached from Genesis 1:26 twice. I think in October of 2023, when I preach about humanity, I'm going to do it again. So this is critical. And, and Genesis 1:1 is critical, because here's what we see, in, that in Genesis, God reveals something about himself to us. In Genesis, we see that God reveals something about himself to us. We can know something about God. And so that's what makes Genesis so critical. And so in Genesis 1-1, we read the very first words of the whole Bible, beginning in Genesis, is that God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And two primary doctrines begin here. Now, in the Christian faith, as I share with you a lot, there are four pillars of the Christian faith. Two of them are found in the New Testament. One of them is the incarnation of Jesus. That's the Christmas time celebration. The other is the resurrection of Jesus. That is the Easter time celebration. But two other doctrines are found throughout the pages of the books of the Bible, but begin in Genesis 1-1. That is creation and revelation. In Genesis 1-1, we see God created. And here's what I always want to say about creation. This is important. There was a time when there was nothing but God. There was a time when nothing existed but God. Even the use of the word time is wrong because before God created anything, there was no need for time. He's an eternal being. And, and there was nothing. And nothingness is hard to picture. Now, when I mention the word nothingness, I realize that some of you may immediately think of like your son-in-law or something like that. But the truth is, we can't picture nothingness. But there was nothing but God. And then there was a moment when all that changed. Like that, all that changed. God spoke things into existence, and we understand creation. But not only is there creation, there is revelation, because we begin to know something about God, not because we discover it, not because we're smart and crafty, but because has, God has revealed it to us. We, we can see it in a general sense. You just look out in the world around us. Listen, embedded in our DNA, imprinted in our DNA is an understanding that in order to have something, someone has to make it. We know that. The idea that there is no creator is not a natural instinct within humanity. It is something that has to be taught us. We look at the mountains. We look at the desert. We look at everything in creation. And we know there's a creator. And so we realize that. And God though, reveals himself to us specifically in the pages of what we call the Bible. 
especially in the life of Jesus. So last four months, you know, starting in January through last week, we were spent four months in the gospel of Mark, seeing God revealing himself to us in Jesus, the ultimate, complete, final revelation of God to us. Now, here's the thing about Genesis that's so important. Genesis begins to reveal to us the way God thinks because of the way it's written. I believe Genesis was written by Moses. Genesis, the first five books of the Bible. The reason I believe Moses wrote it is because of all the alternatives that makes the most sense. The other reason I believe that is because that's what Jesus said. Listen, if Jesus believes Moses wrote Genesis, I'm going with Jesus. You go with whoever you want. I'm going to go with Jesus. So Moses wrote, and it's a beautiful piece of literature. And when I say it's literature, don't don't be offended by that. That, Some people get all upset. It's not literature, it's the Bible. I got it. But anytime you begin to write words and you use grammar and structure, you delve into the world and genres of literature. For instance, the Gospel of Mark is the biography of Jesus, was it not? I mean, it told the story of a guy, the Savior of the world, God in the flesh. Psalms, those are all songs. Those are poetry. And I don't do well with poetry, so I don't do well with psalms. That's why I don't preach from psalms very much. A couple years ago, we had a sermon series from psalms, and I made all the staff guys preach from it because I didn't want to. I said it's a learning exercise for you. Basically, it's because we need to hear from Psalms, and I didn't want to do it. Because I struggle with Psalms. We have letters in the New Testament. We have all these types of literature. And in the Hebrew world, something amazing happens. When they wrote, the Hebrew mind tended to write big picture first, and they would come back and take sections and focus on it so that it looks like you have two accounts of creation in Genesis. And I hear God say, we have two conflicting accounts of Genesis because when the, when the editors put it together, they were too stupid to know what they were doing. Now, that's really what they're saying. No, they're ignorant of how the Hebrews think, how Moses wrote. You have the big picture of creation. Then you have the smaller one, the creation of man. And in the story of creation, there are certain questions that are answered. Who created God? Created us. What was created? The world, us. Why did he create? So we could have a relationship with him. Genesis doesn't really answer the question of how. We want it to, but it doesn't. Genesis is not a science book. I mean, it's just not. Listen, sometimes we have this mindset in Christianity that science and scientists are our enemies. They're not. They're allies. They really are. I've done a ton of research. I mean, I had a whole series 11 years ago on creation, which I did do extensive research, and I was amazed at how many of the world's leading astrophysicists, microbiologists, cosmologists, all the words that I can't even pronounce, I don't even know what they mean, believe that someone created it. Many of them are Christians. We have a lot of scientists come to our church. I mean, they, they, they work at NASA, they work at New Mexico State University. We, we, you know, it's, oh, science is cool. Now, I didn't do good in science. My mind, when I was in school, and I had science, I didn't do well in science. But here's what I did, because I'm a strategic thinker. I found people who did well in science, and I sat next to them. And I made it through science just fine. I do not think you should teach that to your kids. I'm just a 61-year-old man. What are they going to do? Put call my degrees? I don't think so. So here's the thing. In the creation stories, here's what you see happening. You see that creation involves separation, distinction, and completion. In the creation stories, there is separation. There is distinction in creation. For instance, in Genesis 1-1, you have, I mean, Genesis, the first day of Genesis, you have separation of the lights. There's a heavenly light, there's darkness, and there's distinction. There's separation and distinction. Day two, there's the, the sky, there's the water below. Separation and distinction. Day three, land and water. Then, in day four, you have distinction and completion. So, in day four, you have the sun and the moon, which are distinct from each other, but they complete. 
Then you have the birds and you have the fish. They're distinct from each other and they complete. And then on the sixth day, you have all the beasts that are created. They're distinct, but they complete. And the ultimate part of that completion is mankind, who in itself, in humanity, there is separation, distinction, and completion, which brings us to verse 26. And here's what we see. Verse 26, God said, let us make man according to our image and according to our likeness. Now, there's an interesting thing when it says, God said, let us. Because the word God in the Hebrew is plural. It's Elohim. El is singular, but Elohim is plural. And there's a lot of debate about why God in Genesis is listed as a plurality. And I don't have time to go into all of that, but simply to tell you that it is not possible for us to fully grasp God. And so when God inspired people to write about him, what he did and what they did in their wisdom is they understood the best way to describe God is not in the singular, but in the plural, because you have the majesty of God, the fullness of God in plurality, which is more than the singularity. It's just a literary device to show how great God is. And then he said, let us. He's not talking, people say, he's talking about the angels. No, and he's talking about the Trinity. Well, I mean, I understand why we want to believe that. But Moses didn't understand that there was a trinity. Once again, it's a device to say of the fullness of God. It is the complete fullness of God. So what you see is important. It speaks of the majesty and holiness of God. And he said, let us make. The idea of making is to fashion. And he said, we're going to make man. And it's one of the different words used for man. In according to the image and according to the likeness. And the word image is, speaks of an idol. Don't have any graven images. It's the likeness of something. The word, um, it looks like something. The word likeness speaks of the similarities. Now, those are written as two parallel thoughts. They emphasize and support one another. So this is emphatic. The majesty of God is creating man in some way that's emphatically important in his image. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, there's several different ways of understanding that. One way is to understand it, that it is structural or has some sense of substance. In other words, the idea of a soul, that there's eternality. Some way we're like God, structurally, in who we are. We have a soul. Some would say, well, it's relational. Just as God has a relationship with what he created, we have a relationship with God in worship, we can have a relationship with one another. And some say it's functional. In fact, in verse 26, he says, go rule over everything, that we have a purpose, and we do just like God does. And so I would say it's all of those things. To be created image of God is to have some structural, relational, and functional aspect. Think about it for a moment. Humanity is very creative. In fact, we just created music. We sang. There's stuff created, you know, artwork and, and things. We create music and art. We, we have the ability to imagine things. We can solve problems. For instance, at some point, we realized it's really difficult to travel across the country. And so somebody invented a car to make travel easier. And then we realized the roads are bad. And so somebody solved the problem of creating better roads, except maybe in my neighborhood. But somewhere along the line, they did that. And then we have the ability to be self-reflective. We can think about ourselves and our place in the world. You see, ultimately to be human is to reflect the image of God. You, in some way, reflect the image of God. The verse 27 says there's more. It says that God created man in his image. In his image, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created. The word created is used three times. Same word used in verse 1. In verse 1, God created something out of nothing. There was nothing there. And he took that nothing that didn't exist and he made something. But now he took us. And he took man, later on we see, from dust and created man. And then he took the woman from the side of man and created her. And here what we see once again is we see 
separation, distinction, create, uh, uh, com- uh, completion. He took the male and female and made them separate. But it wasn't male and male or female and female. He made a distinction between the two. There was a male and there's a female. Next week, Joe's going to preach in Genesis 2 about uh, marriage. And we'll come to the completion. This is the way God made things. Here's the problem. When you take God out of the equation, which people do today, by the way, many people want to take God out of the equation. When you remove God, what you have left is no longer in the image of God. And so then you see people being referred to as nothing more than animals. In fact, I'll read this, I'll hear this, I'll see, I'll hear people say, you know, humans and apes share 98 or 99% of their DNA. I don't know what the exact number is. I'm sure some of you will tell me later because you always like to correct me whenever you think I'm wrong, though most of the time you're the one who's wrong, not me, but not in this case. Truth of the matter is, humans and mosquitoes share like 92% of the same DNA. And it's not just because they suck the blood out of you, it's just a Jew. And so that's no big deal. But, but, but just think for a moment the more we try to show how closely connected we are to the rest of the created world, the more you realize the distinction and separation. For instance, beavers create dams. And they can create several dams in a stream to control the flow of water. But you know what beavers can't do? They can't create dams that produce electricity. They can't do that. Dolphins, I know, you ever have someone who went swimming with the dolphins? I met a girl one time. I went swimming with the dolphins. I'd have been more impressed if she went swimming with sharks. Go out with the great whites, cut yourself on the arm, let you bleed a little bit, then you're impressing me. (laughs) Dolphins can communicate in whistles and noises and sounds, but you know what dolphins don't do? They don't develop rules of grammar. It's a lot like Gen Z people on the internet. There's no grammar in the dolphin world. (laughs) People need to learn comma every once in a while. Though it's not as bad as your grandparents who think they need to cap everything when they cite. Some of you do that when you send me emails and I'm like laughing at you because I'm smarter than you on the internet. That's not saying much. (laughs) Here's the other thing. People say, well, you know, penguins and wolves and gibbons, they mate for life. Yes, but they don't have marriage ceremonies and they don't celebrate anniversaries. You see, the more you try to make creation and mankind similar, the more distinct we become. So here we have the whole thing. Does God have anything to say to us? And right here on the page of this first chapter, we see what God has to say. Here's what he says, if I may kind of paraphrase it and be so bold. He said, I created you with purpose. I created you with purpose. Do you not see the design and the intentionality in the purpose of God and creation? Now, what I want to do now is I want to share with you five truths to teach your children from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Now, there's a lot more. There's so many things in Genesis to teach. At this passage. And, you know, the, let me explain something to you when we talk about, I use the passage multiple times. The interpretation, the explanation of the passage is always the same. What God intended the writer to write to the original audience is always the interpretation. But sometimes there's a lot of ways to apply a passage. This is such a rich passage. I come to Genesis so often because there's so much to learn from it. And there's things for you to teach your kids. And so I want to spend just a few moments teaching you for their sake. And, and depending on the age of your kids and where they are developmentally, and I know all of you think your kids are really geniuses, but they're not. They're all just average. 
What you need to realize is how you take that information and make it work for them. So here's the thing. There is one who created them, and that one is God. There is but one who created them, and that is God. Now, they're going to run into occasions where they're told that they weren't created, and I get all that, and that's a whole other issue altogether. But instinctively, we know we're created. Inside of us is the knowledge that someone made us. Here's why. Because we know that everything we looked at that was made was made by somebody from something. That's why every culture that just exists without influence from another culture always worships something. They worship something because they need to express their understanding that somehow they were created. Now, sociology is something that I understand. And so that, that, is, that is part of who we are. Over there in Wamba land, and Wamba land is a preschool area. Wamba is Swahili for creation. You say, why did you pick that? Because I stole it from another church because it sounded cool. That's all. <laughs> we teach preschoolers three things. We teach them God made them. God loved them. Jesus is their friend. That's what we teach your kids. If they're over there now, theoretically, that's what they're being taught, something along that lines. Someone made them. The one who made them is God. The second thing that you need to teach your kids, it, God is the moral authority who will hold them accountable for everything they do. God is the moral authority that will hold them accountable for everything we do. We're living in a day and age where people don't want to be held accountable because there is a mindset, there is a worldview that is taught in the culture today that there is no objective truth. See, when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, Everybody understood that you were accountable for something. We, there, was, there was something you were held to a standard to. You know, I grew up in a, in a Churchill High School in San Antonio. And, you know, back then, you know, we were either you know, the Christians or Jews. And not, not, not that everybody was faithful and everybody followed Jesus and I got all that. And lots of people rejected it. But they all understood that there was some sense of religious connection in their life. And there was some authority behind it. We all understood that in America, our authority is the Constitution. Period. That everything reverts back to that. If you join when I got in college, a fraternity, there were some rules and regulations that you follow. I mean, you, every organization you understand, your job, there's a job description. There is something that holds you accountable. But we live in a day and age where we're told that there's no moral truth, that, that reality is whatever you want it, that truth is whatever you want it to be. You create your own reality. Now, here's the problem. If your reality and my reality collide, who wins out? Well, if you believe there's an objective moral standard, you appeal to that moral standard, and whatever the moral standard goes, that's the one that, okay, that wins out. We all agree to it. But if there's no moral standard, then who wins? The more powerful one wins. Power always becomes the victor. Sin always becomes the victor. And kids are being raised, not raised, kids are being influenced by society, what they watch and what happens and where they go and who influences them, that they can create their own reality. And you need to help them understand they can't. Because what's happening is kids are growing up and then they're facing what we call the real world. And in the real world, they're handle, they, they run into accountability and they can't handle accountability. And their world crashes because their parents failed them. Better teach your kids. They're held accountable. And here's the next part of that. And the third thing, God the creator, who is the ultimate authority, determines what is true, not his creation. When you create, when you make something, you get to decide what it's used for. The, 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 the potter determines the value and the usage of the pot, not the other way around. 
And so in creation, since God created, God gets to decide what is true. Now this is where the image of God is important because almost all moral problems we face come back to the image of God. Now I realize a lot of these are political and I get it. And I understand there's politics involved and knock yourself out, I understand. But when it comes to murder, adultery, homosexuality, theft, lying, all of those you know, sins or whatever, there's a moral kind of scale. All of it comes back to the image of God. Never is that more true than the area of abortion. I mean, <laughs> in my lifetime, I've seen this whole battle play out. And Christians, we got this wrong so much because we made abortion a battle of viability of life. And we missed something critically important. See, at the end of the day, when, and, and we got... So many women getting pregnant and having babies. And it's such a great thing. Here's what I know. And there, this, again, this is not science. This is from watching a lot of stuff over the years that you had to watch growing up and all those things. At some point, a woman becomes pregnant. It's like that. And it's always the woman, by the way. Guys can't become pregnant. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but at some point, you know how it all happens. Like that. And when that occurs, there is a mass of something there. What has that little clump of cells? It's human, is it not? I mean, do a DNA test. Do DNA. It's human. It's not anything else. And the minute we understand that it is human, then that human bears the image of God. Life is valuable, not viable. In fact, here's the thing. When God separates male and female... He makes a distinction by not the kind that you are, but by our gender. In fact, let me, let me go ahead to the fourth thing that you need to teach your kids. God created two genders, male and female, for a reason. And Joe will deal with that a lot more next week. But here's the thing. When, when someone has a baby, even think about the animal world. I think I told you that we, we think about kind of, kind of animal, kind of, if you a bird, what kind of bird? If you buy a puppy, what kind of puppy? Is it a chihuahua, a German shepherd, what? But when, when someone's pregnant, and we say, what are you having? We're not asking them, what kind of thing are you having? They have a human. They understand, are you having a boy or a girl? Everybody wants to know. And now, if we don't want to reveal the gender. We're having gender reveals. And that confuses me greatly. Just, what are you having? You want a gift? Give me some clue. My wife will do it. If they don't tell you what they're having, forget them. This is the battle we face today. As parents, you're facing this battle. This is the battleground. Right now, it's about gender. I got good news for you. The most influential people in your child's life is you. Always will be. You are always the most influential people in your child's life. Now, your child may reject. Your child may stomp off and rebel. <laughs> Been there, done that. Not me, but I've had them rebel. I did too. But I've had to deal with that. But I know this. I always say confidence she would always come back around. Because when she was young, we instilled in her a belief system. Part of that belief system, you better instill in your kids, is male and female. Will they struggle? Yes. Will they come in conflict? Yes. Will the culture try to tear that from them? Yes. Why do you think the culture is trying to determine who gets to decide what your kids believe? If they can take that from you, will they win? Teach your children. Two genders. And here's the fifth thing. Rejecting God and his authority doesn't make his existence and his authority any less real or true. 
just because you reject authority doesn't mean it's not the authority. And just because you reject God doesn't mean God's not true. At some point along your way, a lot of your kids will probably struggle and reject, but they'll almost always come back because ultimately they know it's true. Teach them what is true. So here's the thing. To sum all of this up, here's what I will tell you. You better decide what your kids believe because God gave them to you. He didn't give them to me. He didn't give them to the culture. He didn't give them to your school system. He didn't give them to society. He didn't give them to the government. He gave them to you. And if you don't decide what they believe, someone else will. Someone else will. So we come back to the question. Who gets to decide what your kids believe? Well, the good news is this. You do, if you'll do it. Parents, teach your children well. Teach them the truth of God. Teach them what God wants them to know. Teach them what God has revealed. It is not easy. It is, not a, it is a battle. And all I can say to you is welcome to the battle with the rest of us who are there. In just a moment, we're going to have a few people here. And we'll have a lady here. If women, if you'd rather, sometimes women would rather respond to another woman, that's fine. But we're going to give you opportunity to pray. If you want us to pray with you, pray for your family, pray for your kids, we'll, we'll do that. We'll pray with you, pray for you. If there's a burden or a need in your life, you want us to pray, we will. And, and we want this to be an opportunity for you to really think about the commitment you need to make with your kids. Some of you are struggling, I know that. And... You know, maybe some of you, after the series on Mark, you want to give your life to Christ because you didn't do it yet, but you have, and you can come and give your life to Christ, that's fine. You want to join our church, that's fine. But here's what I really want. I want you to make a commitment today that you will engage these next few weeks. And you will engage in these next few weeks, realize, and commit yourself to the fact that you've got to guard the hearts and the minds and the lives of your kids and your grandkids and that we as a church have to do the same. Because God gave them to you. Father, we thank you for our kids. It's a journey. And sometimes it's a wild journey. Sometimes it's a rough journey. But it's always one worth taking. I thank you so much for mine. And what she meant to her mother and I. When there was a time in our life, we never thought we would have a child. And you gave one to us. And you give all of us who have children these beautiful gifts. And Father, along the road, we want to give them back to you. We want to raise them well. Father, we want to guard their hearts. So let us make that commitment. We'll make it for your glory. We'll make it for your honor. And we'll make it for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand? You come. We'll be here.